Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. is a sculptor, installation, multimedia, and textile artist who lives in Selwyn, Ontario, working with assemblage and text, video and projection, and incorporating traditional textile methods with unconventional materials. Kelly creates objects and experiences that explore the fluidity and impermeability of embodied experience. Kelly works with objects and materials that relate to the materiality of our physical beings, Often beginning from a personal experience, she searches for an image, substance, or object that moves beyond the personal to the collective. Kelly creates work that dissolves the border between viewer and object and places the viewer within the experience of the moment. After completing an honours BA in philosophy and English literature at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, Kelly worked as a social worker before having a family and staying home to raise her four children, having an artist practice throughout her life that often came second to other responsibilities. Kelly returned to school full-time and completed her BFA in sculpture and installation at the Ontario College of Art and Design University in Toronto, Ontario in 2018. Her work has been shown in galleries in Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia. Please help me welcome Kelly O'Neill to the podcast. Morning, Kelly. How are you today? Good morning, Lisa. Thank you. I'm I'm well. I'm so excited that we're getting this chance to chat. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We're going to go a little bit backwards. We're going to start with the most recent. You graduated 2018 from OCAD University. Yep, that's correct. And you have four kids. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very busy, busy time in my life and very full, uh, fruitful and, and then difficult, but it was really important for me to go to school. I, I wasn't a person who had always had this dream of going to art school. I do believe you can be an artist and, and not go to art school, but it was about prioritizing my uh, art practice, and it just felt like a, a good way to do it, that everyone would understand, like everyone in my house would understand. Everybody knew what school was like, that you have responsibilities and deadlines and that you have to live up to them. And it felt like a, a good uh, way to kind of make a frame around my practice where it was, I had obligations and I couldn't put it aside because there were other needs or mm-hmm. requirements. So of course it became much more than that, but that was what it kind of pushed me to go I was going to say, how do you balance four children with full-time school? Like that had to be logistically at times challenging. Yeah, it was, I would say, all the time (laughs) challenging. And, you know, there's expectations we put on ourselves or culturally put on us about about mothering and so it was it was hard to find a balance between the two i'm lucky my kids are supportive and interested and were really understanding but of course they have all their needs my youngest was 10 when i went and my oldest was 17 and so yeah there was a lot of juggling 
I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and not a lot of sleep. What kind of advice would you give to other mothers who are thinking of either pursuing their own practice or even just like you did, go back to school? I would say go for it. You know, things can happen differently than, than they have been happening and you can make things work. So if it's important to you, and I think it's really difficult as a mother, it can, it's so consuming. And for me, it was such a beautiful reminder of all that I am. A mother too, but also, you know, just a human being in the world. And it reacquainted me with myself. It kind of brought to the fore kind of that I may have things to offer to the world, you know, that some of the things that um, are inside me are worth sharing. And I I would say that's true for everybody. So yeah, find a way. Mm -hmm. There's a way. Now, when we look at your practice, you've always been a creative person. So Who was that person that inspired you? Where did that creativity start to nourish itself from an early age? Well, I was lucky in that my parents were very good about, you know, not being overly stressed about mess. (laughs) So, you know, we did have painting and and drawing and stuff at, at home. It wasn't a big deal. You know, you could do it. But I think really the memory that really connects me to my practice as an artist is my grandmother. She taught me how to crochet when I was four. And then not long after taught me how to knit. And I've always looked at that as a real connection to my textile practice, obviously, and kind of this connection to my personal history and then the collective history of textile. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about it the other day, actually, and I started to realize that actually it's not just my relationship to a textile practice. It was my earliest relationship to a sculptural practice because here I was taking a a line of yarn that itself was transformed from fleece into yarn and then taking this line of yarn and creating another object, a three-dimensional object, a usable object sometimes, you know, like, and so it really was uh, my introduction into sculpture. It connected me to this idea that I could transform things, that that the relationship between myself and a material could become something else, you know, like that there was another, there was a third thing created. It wasn't just me and it wasn't just the material, but, but it became this object. So it really was an introduction to this interest in creating objects. And when you went into OCAD, was that what you were thinking, that you were going to focus on sculpture or textile, or did you just go in with an open heart? Well, it's actually kind of funny what, now that you asked me that question, because when I applied to the drawing and painting program, now I, I do, I have a love of drawing and it is a very basic part of my practice that I need to stay connected with. And I love, you know, the immediacy of drawing and how you, you just need, you need so little to create an image. But I applied to OCAD in a bit of a rush. Like I kind of decided all of a sudden that that's what I needed to do. And then I realized that the deadline had already passed for application. And so I did kind of a hurried application. I got in touch with them, said, could I still apply? And they said, well, you know, we'll let you know if we're going to take late applicants. And in my rush, I felt like I had to apply to a program. And I applied to drawing and painting. And so my first year, but in the first year, you take a breadth of study, just like any university, really. But my focus was drawing and painting. And I I soon realized that I'm not really a painter and the focus was pretty heavily in painting. And I began to make 
work that was more three-dimensional and through my sculpture I took an introduction to sculpture course and then I switched into the sculpture and installation program where I realized it was much more even my painting teacher said I always knew it's going to be in a, you'd move to the sculpture even because of the way I was painting I was painting the same object every assignment that we had and it was really about my relationship to that object and and now I'm curious what is that object That object was actually an old wooden chair that I found on the side of the road. I have a bit of a a love of chairs for some reason. I I think partly because they relate to the body. So, you know, I mean, they only exist the way they exist because our bodies exist the way they exist. And when I see an old chair abandoned on the side of the road, it's really hard for me not to stop and pick it up. But this was an old one. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. There's spindles missing and there's wear. You can see the use of it. And uh, so that was the object, the chair. And actually, it has featured in a lot of my installations. And my final project for that painting class, the actual chair was there as well as the paintings that I had done of it. So two questions. Do you still have the chair? And how many other chairs do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely still have that chair. It's been in a couple of installations in different forms. And right now it's been altered in a way that I think is probably its final iteration, though it may still find a place within an installation. So yes, I still have that chair. It's in my studio. And how many chairs do I have? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Wooden chairs, I, I love. I actually have in, in one corner of my studio, I have a stack of three chairs because, and there, there's one that's kind of a, a regular adult size chair. And then there's a smaller one and a smaller one and a smaller one on top. So even that, I just love the, the relationship of them stacked like that. So I, I have several. <laughs> I love that. That's great. <laughs> this is something I'm learning about you today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sometimes I, when I'm driving along with somebody and they see chairs on the side of the road, you can just feel this, the, the speed of the car speed up a, a little bit to try and get past. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you also have this love of textile. You have this beautiful stitchery work. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, the stitching is such a beautiful practice. I find it so meditative. And actually, there's a lot of practice now. There's a lot of people who are engaged with stitching in that way. Not stitching to make something, but for the sake of stitching. And I do stitch in that way. I think for me, I've always loved stitching and I love the look of it. My mom's a seamstress. She sews beautifully. I, she's, I don't sew the way she does, but I've always loved the stitch. And I've used stitch in some of my two-dimensional work. When I'm drawing, sometimes I'll put stitching within the the drawing. But more recently, I I think when COVID happened, our first lockdown and stuff, it seems like artists responded in one of two ways. Either they got really super engaged in their practice and had the time and the space and felt really able to work, or they felt kind of paralyzed. And unfortunately, I felt in the latter group where I felt like um, really challenged to create, to be inspired, to do my work in the ways that I had been doing it previously. But my hands were hungry for work. My hands get, you know, that kind of desire to be touching something, to be interacting with something. And I think that goes right back to those first days of crocheting with my grandmother. And I decided I'd start uh, mending. 
I had a huge mending pile that, of course, was just getting bigger <laughs> over time and having difficulty getting to it. You know, it would be put aside. And I thought, well, I've got this mending pile. I'm going to do this mending. So I started doing the mending as a way of engaging. And it actually was the perfect thing for me to be doing during that time of lockdown when the fear and the uncertainty and the mending gave me this focus uh, attention you know you're attending to something you're tending something you're taking care you're imbuing revalue you know you're kind of in really relationship with the thing that you're mending you know you're recognizing the value that's already in it that you want to tend to it and you're kind of giving it even more value by giving your time and attention and the care and so I mended and I mended and I mended and I got through the whole pile and it was just a really good way to, to get me back in touch with a practice. Mm -hmm. And then when the mending was all finished, I wanted to be doing that kind of work, that kind of attention, that kind of relationship with material. And that's when I decided I'd start this stitching practice where I would every Sunday engage with stitching for no purpose. So the mending had a purpose, you know, it was to mm -hmm. repair. And then I kind of was left without, I, oh, I don't have anything left to repair. What will I do? And then I thought, there's, there's so much value in this practice, regardless of the end result. So I've been trying to make a practice out of that, a kind of a Sunday ritual where I sit and I stitch and I use materials that, scraps of material that I have around or old vintage napkins or handkerchiefs and things like that and I just sit down and, and start stitching with no end goal in mind. Do you think there's a relationship between your stitching and your drawing practice? Definitely you know the more I think of each because I do these varied things and I sometimes I think oh you know like and people say oh you do so many different things you know and and I do. At some points I feel like oh maybe I'm just so scattered you know there's like I do this and then I'm interested in that and I want to make you know, sculptures out of natural material, and I want to make a video, and I want to do the drawing and the stitching. And But I think it's all related, and it's all about, um, it's material investigation, it's practice, it's touching, it's relationship, building. Every Everything's building on, you know, like on very little. So one stitch is one stitch, but then you keep going. And the drawing's kind of similar, you know, where you just, you make a line. And then you make another one. And uh, it's this kind of, this building on this repetition that's similar that I'm interested in. So you've talked about how this is becoming part of your practice. When life is busy, do you keep a sketchbook? Do you have little scraps of paper around? Or is a Sunday practice sort of where you get your inspiration from for larger works? No, it's not just that. Uh, the Sunday practice is, is nice because it's sitting and it's quiet and it's like a meditation. Not always. It doesn't always work this way, but it's nice when it works this way where it's a moment of kind of stepping outside of the busyness and just being with the practice. So it provides that. But through the week, I've got a sketchbook that I make notes in. I'm always writing things down on scraps of paper that are scattered everywhere. <laughs> Sometimes I find them and, you know, it's like, well, what, what was that about? So I feel like I make notes on my phone, you know, like I'll record an idea or if I hear something that's inspirational, I write it down or record it. And I feel like it's always 
I mean, we're so gifted with inspiration. All we have to do is, is be aware of it. <laughs> you know, it's all around. So I try to remain open to it. And the Sunday practice, what that gives me is the quiet to remind me that the quiet exists within the busyness. Because I think, you know, we can get so caught up in the busyness. And that's, that's when I get where I'm not available to the inspiration that's around because I'm just kind of head down in the busyness. So the, the Sunday practice where I'm sitting down and making a bit of a ritual of it, I think it helps open me up even during the busy times, you know, that I can be available to what's being offered by the world around me. You also have an interest in the natural world and materiality of that type of world. Can you speak a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, more and more I'm finding I want to engage with natural materials. I mean, I've always been interested in natural materials, but I'm feeling now really it's like a requirement to engage with natural materials and with the natural world through that way. It's like having a conversation. I find when I'm engaged with any kind of material, even in my drawing, you know, it's like a conversation. But when I engage with natural materials, like I've been using different leaves, vine sticks, I'm starting to make kind of sculptural objects with natural materials. I'm also using materials for dyeing. It's about relationship and acknowledging the relationship and awareness of what's happening. So for example, I was making cordage this morning out of daffodil leaves, and it was reminding me of, you know, in the spring you see the, the daffodils start to come up, and it's exciting, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and then you see the, the flowers start to form, and they bloom, and, and you enjoy them, and then things start to die off. But I've started to engage with kind of all the stages of that life where I'm happy to see it coming up. I enjoy the beautiful flower. When the flowers die, I collect the petals and I use them for dyeing materials. Mm -hmm. And then when the leaves fade, I leave them until they kind of fade. And then I collect them and dry them in my studio. And then I can use them to make cordage with. So I, I felt so engaged with all the stages of the life of this daffodil, you know, instead of just being like excited about it coming up and in awe of its beauty when it was blooming and then kind of like, oh, it's dead now. But it didn't. It kept living, you know, because then it's like, oh, this is still offering its color and now it's offering its fiber. And then touching it and manipulating it informs me about what it is and how it grows. And I, I just find that so fascinating. So, yeah, more and more I'm interested in using materials that are natural or found or already existing rather than, you know, things that have to be produced for my use. You were talking about the dyeing. I know last summer you did a, a series of works where you were actually dyeing and they're these beautiful indigos. Can you speak about that? And like, how did you make that color? It's stunning. Yes. Well, I can't take credit for making that color, but I hope to make some next year. The indigo plant, it's an amazing thing that it does this beautiful blue, blue color. And there's no indication on the plant itself. Like when I use the daffodils to do direct dyeing on yarn, it's yellow you know, but indigo plant, it's not blue, <laughs> it's green. And there's this whole process that's quite involved to make it, to get the color out of it. And uh, it's quite a fascinating way of extracting the color. And then also the dye vat itself is quite different because it's like a fermentation process. It's not like a stew. A lot of dyes, you make a stew of the plant material and that releases the color and you dye it in that way. But this, they call it a living vat because there's this kind of fermentation you process and you have to feed it and whatnot. I purchased that 
Indigo from a company, Maywa Textiles, out in BC, who mm-hmm. source their indigo from, you know, this is ethically um, sourced and using traditional methods and whatnot. And so that felt good as an introduction to it because I, I'm very new. To, I've only been investigating indigo for a couple of years. And that was my first time that I was making my own vat. So the indigo, the whole process was already done for me and I just needed to make the vat and feed it and whatnot. Now, I do have a friend who has indigo that grows in her garden. And so next year, I've been investigating how to go about the process myself. And Mm. next year, I'm going to explore that. I love the idea of, I mean, it's great to get this indigo that I know is being ethically sourced and that it's supporting traditional farmers, but it's also coming quite a distance. I love the idea of this stuff in my own area, my own yard, my own walks. And this is a a friend, and we talked about it this year, and next year I'll harvest some of her indigo and see what I can can come up with. Well, it's incredible what you created and the patterns and the designs that you got from it. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful, there is a magic to it. I love things where you can kind of direct them, but you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> I mm-hmm. always love that. I love that, you know, in all my practices where, where I'm only kind of so much in charge. And then there's this kind of giving over to the process. And with indigo, it's very much that way. And so you can kind of direct it, but then there's this unveiling that even for me, <laughs> is always a surprise, you know, when I open them up. And it feels like there's a magic happening that I'm really very minor. <laughs> I'm a very minor actor in the process. <laughs> well, I have to say, I'm trying to imagine your studio, Kelly, with the chairs, the drying materials, the nature objects, the sewing, like, it must be a real treat to walk in there. <laughs> Thanks. I actually had my uh, my nieces and nephew, they're six years old, and they were here the other day, and they just poke around, and they're looking at things, and I have, I have skeletons and snake skins and, you know, stones and all birds' nests and stuff around, and so they're all looking at things and touching, you know, and asking questions, and then one of them said, I love coming to your house, Aunt Kelly. It's like a museum. <laughs> there's, there's so much beauty. Yeah, I don't have the snake skin, but I got some of the other stuff. Well, so. I, I hope you find one one day. I, w- I was very lucky. I, f- I found before pieces of, you know, like pieces of snake skin, but I have one that's completely intact, head to tip of tail. You can even see the indentation of like the eyes and stuff in the, the facial part. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you've also done a couple of residencies and retreats. Do you want to talk about that and how that helps you or informs what you do as an artist? Yeah, I've done residencies with groups. So I haven't done a, a solo residency, which I do hope to do someday soon. <laughs> but I've done with groups. I'm kind of working on my own, but also there's you know people around doing their practices. And so there's lots of opportunity for conversation and crossover, you know, like you get uh, inspired and information about materials and different practices. And it's great to have a time where I'm stepping outside of everything here and just being able to really focus on my work. Yeah, residencies, I'd like to to have more of an opportunity to be involved with. And then usually with a residency, there's an opportunity to share your work, either through a show or through a talk. And and that's good too, you know, it's a good push to have to do that and show your processes and not just the final 
I mean, I, I know for myself, I really appreciate when I can see the stages of somebody's process rather than just like, I mean, it's beautiful to see the end result, but it's like, it's just so much more information when you can see the whole process. And also to realize that people go through, pro, you know, a process that, you know, people don't just necessarily magically sit down and all in one go paint this beautiful painting that's now that's now sitting in front of you. So to see p different people's processes and the way they work through things and come to roadblocks and then go around them and how that feeds the work rather than detract from it. I've had, that's, residencies have really offered me and really the conversation, conversation is so important. How does community play a part in your practice? Um, more and more I'm trying to become involved in the community. I feel like for a long time, I think, you know, with being busy at home and trying to kind of eke out time for my art practice, it was very much a solitary, private thing. You know, like I did it for myself and I needed it to be that. But more and more, I'm finding the importance of community and I don't just mean a, a community of, of fellow artists but a community of people who are interested in creativity in community building through creativity unfortunately COVID's taken a hit on these gatherings but there are a few artists in Peterborough where I live next to and they organize these community events where people would come together and artists would share some of their processes or share some of their techniques and I was invited to be involved in that and I was becoming more and more involved with that and it feels healing you know to have people together and um, to share those things ways of being I think creativity can offer a lot in terms of community building mm -hmm. so I'm hoping as things open up we'll be able to do some more of that kind of thing yeah uh, that's really important for artists we need that collaborative time as much as the alone time. Yeah, and working with people who are, are creative people but don't consider themselves artists or don't have an artist practice is really valuable because we share and exchange and it is important and it adds meaning to the work. Well, as we wrap up the podcast, I always ask my guests if there's a book or more recently, if there's an artist that they think other people should be looking at or exploring. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's so hard both on both counts to pick one well I'll, I'll mention a book actually reading poetry I find is very uh I often I'll sit down and kind of flip through a book of poetry before I work not always but sometimes and because I've been interested in nature and relationship with nature I'll read like Mary Oliver or Wendell Berry I read mm -hmm. older poets too like E.E. E. Cummings and Gwendolyn McEwen but I've just started rereading a book called The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. And he's an ecologist and uh, philosopher. And it's a really interesting book about, it's kind of about relearning our being in the world. Like he talks about how we, all human beings come from a history of being in active relationship with the world, like with other animals, with plants, but also with like just with mountains or rivers or the wind and climate and that we come from a history like our longest history is being in um, active relationship with the world and he talks about how that's shifted and that we now kind of live primarily in relationship with other humans and other human-made technologies and that there's been this divide in our relationship 
to the sensuous world. And mm. yeah, so he kind of questions why that happened, what caused it. It's not a heavy read. He writes beautifully and he wants to encourage kind of this to re-engage with this reciprocal relationship with the natural world. So engaging with our senses and all that's offered around us. So I would recommend that book, I think. That sounds beautiful. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it really is beautiful. It's nice because he writes in different ways. He writes for two different groups of people and he kind of lays it out. There's one that's kind of more poetic and then there's one that's more science-based, like more based in ecology. And he's trying to kind of like capture, you know, everybody's attention. And so it's a good read. I read it quite a long time ago and I'm, I'm just back into it. So... Well, thank you. That's wonderful. Kelly, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This has been so inspiring. I feel like getting my stitching work back out again. Oh, good. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Lisa. I really appreciate it. I love the conversation. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.